Hey, you're tuning into Unleash Your Inner Goddess, Season 2, where we deep dive into life and business as a neurodivergent entrepreneur. This season is dedicated to any and all neurodivergent folk, diagnosed or not. This episode and the one before it contain epic conversations with eight amazing entrepreneurs who are all sharing the highs and lows, the successes and the struggles of being a neurodivergent person in business. They're getting real and honest in sharing their own journey and I'm sure you're here for it. Neurodivergent is the minority. We are often an afterthought. Things are seldom made or built with us in mind. Therefore, we need to listen to one another, figure out what might help us flourish just a little bit or aid our productivity 5% more. Learning from others' trial and error and sharing your own discoveries too. In this episode, you get to hear from a trauma recovery coach, a coach for introverts, a book development coach, editor, and author, as well as a sales and marketing specialist. These highly skilled, highly trained, and successful entrepreneurs are going to be sharing their experience with neurodivergence. Let's jump into these juicy conversations and I'll introduce each guest as we go. The conversations are all under 15 minutes in length, so they're perfect to digest. All the bios, social media and links for each guest can be found in the show notes. First up is my chat with the brilliant Whitney Kreisgau. Whitney is a certified trauma recovery coach that specializes in adult healing from childhood neglect and abuse. Being an empath and having had experienced this pain of neglect and abuse herself, Whitney understands the challenges survivors face and the overwhelming feelings that come from being traumatized. Whitney uses the concept of interpersonal relationships and vulnerability to encourage others in their journey to regain their sense of safety within themselves and in the world around them. Let's jump in. So Whitney, tell the listeners really succinctly, if you can, who you are, how you identify as a neurodivergent person, or how you help neurodivergent people. Absolutely. Um, I identify as an HSP. Um, I have sensory processing sensitivity, and I am also an empath. Um, I work as a trauma recovery coach, and I walk with people through their trauma. And um, because I am an HSP and empath, I really like to focus on those types of people um, because our sensitivity can make um, traumatic experiences that much harder on our brains and on our bodies. So am I right in thinking that you help other people as well who are HSP and, you know, neurodivergent in that way? Yes. Specifically? Yes. Um, it's part of my niche. I, um, I, focus mostly on adults healing from childhood neglect and abuse. Um, but being an HSP, I have learned that people who are neurodivergent, um, because the brain and the body are a little bit more sensitive, um, those experiences really affect us on a deeper level. Mm, I feel you. I feel you with that. So I'm HSP as well. So for those who don't know what that is, it's a highly sensitive person, um, very empathetic, very in tune with other people's emotions, even when we don't want to be, right? <laughs> yes. Um, and it can be quite draining and, and difficult to sort of protect our energies and things like that. So what you're doing is really deep, profound work, actually, taking into consideration 
managing your own um, energy, your own boundaries and your own, um, yes. your own body. We're definitely still figuring that out. <laughs> yeah. I was gonna say, how do you, how do you find that middle ground? How do you, how are you able to help those people and really make, you know, inroads with their recovery whilst protecting your energy as well? Um, so I've done a lot of work when it comes to the way my brain um, understands trauma, especially with my own childhood stuff. I come from a background of childhood neglect and abuse, and that really set me up for a lot of unhealthy relationships and uh, behavioral patterns that I had to break um, through my own healing journey. Mm. Um, and then being a mother of three, that is also very extreme. Um I, I'm still trying to work out how to honor my body and what my body needs in my healing journey. Um, so I still very much have an overactivated nervous system. Um, and that's another venture that I'm going into learning how to decompress that and just honor myself in the moment instead mm. of fighting through with that people pleasing tendency um, to just want to do, do, do for others, learning how to not be over sacrificial and really honor myself. I think that's a really, it's a, it's a constant journey that isn't it? That self-development and that learning, okay, what do I need? But when do I need it as well? Like if I push that back, what are the negative implications of that? Am I going to be overwhelmed? Am I going to react to my loved ones in a different way? Am I going to you know, is that sort of procrastination going to start creeping in? Is that sort of, you know, you start thinking, oh, am I actually good enough? I've just burnt Mm -hmm. out. I've just cried. I've just this, you know, insert whatever. And then you think, why am I actually cut out for this? And yes, you are. It's just, we've just gone past the point where we went, hold on a sec. We're feeling something here. Yeah. You know, our nervous system's activated. Our stress levels are up and, you know, fight or flight is definitely here. And it was squashing that down. Yeah. Yeah. And the more that you squash those down, I mean, that's where a lot of like health issues come into play because you're not releasing all of that body energy and tension and continually doing that. I mean, I, I know like I struggle with several autoimmune disorders, um, because of my 30 plus years of squashing it down. Um, and so that's been its own journey, trying to figure out, how to make those connections and really honor myself in the moment so that it doesn't continue to make me more sick. Yeah. And I know a lot of HSPs and they also deal with chronic illnesses because of, you know, just overextending yourself. Yeah, no, I can relate to that. I also have fibro, so I'm, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm dealing with that too. Um, Yeah, I would, I would love to, to research these studies that correlate the two, that correlate those mm-hmm. um, illnesses and those diseases with um, either, you know, big T trauma, little T trauma. What has, is there any links yeah. to childhood trauma? Is there any links to, um, you know, even stuff that's happened as an adult? Just There are so many resources to make those connections. I can totally send those to you. <laughs> Oh yeah, please do. I will have some reading over a nice cup of tea. <laughs> oh yes. And the connection between um, 
childhood neglect and abuse and HSPs is very high as well. Because we are so sensitive to our environment, when those um, childhood needs of just being affirmed, validated, seen, accepted, um, when those are ignored, the HSP, our attunement becomes so extreme that we end up not being able to see that the environment around us is unhealthy, but then we start taking it on that we are the unhealthy one. And then Mm. we try to fix ourselves and then the people pleasing comes in. Yeah. It's such a vicious cycle. Yeah. I think that's it. I think when, and as, as children as well, we don't know what's going on. We don't know that life is meant to look different. We don't know that our caregivers are meant to treat us in a different way. We just know what is, right? So we're reacting. We don't know that we're HSP at that point either. So yeah. like, it is just, it is for us, isn't it? Um, and I didn't suffer um, a terrible childhood at all. My um, my fibro stems from uh, a lot of grief mm. uh, and unjust uh, things that happened. But um but I can imagine as a child not knowing that they need their needs need to be met in a different way and they're more in tune and more likely to react, you know, in a way that, that doesn't help the situation that unfortunately they're placed in. Right. Because what child has the has the communication skills to be able to say, I mm-hmm. need this. Yeah. Oh, good. I feel like we could talk about this for, for a long time. <laughs> I, feel like, yeah, I feel like this is a whole nother episode. <laughs> um, I'm digressing now. What is your, what would you say your biggest struggle is going back to your business and your life as a HSP? um, What would your biggest struggle be? Would you say? Oh, um, (laughs) my biggest struggle is honestly not overextending myself, Um, finding that right balance between work and life, because, you know, being a wife and a mother of three and a house to run. And then the business, it's like, there's so many different hats that you have to wear and trying to find the right balance Mm -hmm. so that one doesn't get neglected over the other. That is very challenging. And because I still struggle with the people pleasing aspect of life, I want to do it all. And I want to be, you know, the superwoman that doesn't struggle, but reality is, is I can't. And so I do go through my mini burnouts and I have to reset and regroup and that's okay. Cause it just is, it's a journey. It is a journey. That's it. And, and unfortunately the balance, there isn't always a balance. Is it like your kid gets sick or, you know, you lose a massive client. It's like, okay, you need to focus on like bringing in the revenue or, you know, like for us, like, like last month, the boiler broke and it was like, okay, all hands on deck to get the heating and the hot water back on. Like the rest of my house sort of, went by the wayside because mm-hmm. I was so focused on like keeping the kids warm with the plug-in electric heaters that we had and like making sure that we utilize the hot water that we did have in the tank and you know mm-hmm. for me that was it suddenly became it, it wasn't survival as as many people understand the word survival but it was kind of like okay we need to survive this this section this phase mm-hmm. of life where we have to wait eight days for a replacement boiler like eight days eight days there was a massive uh yeah there was a massive issue with it they thought they could fix it and then they couldn't fix it and it was like okay we need to get a new one they had to order it in and wait till they could come and fit it and then it took them two days because some part didn't arrive it was just a bit of a a washout but yeah it was eight days brutal eight days um with very expensive (laughs) electricity bills because I was using those super uh, inefficient radiators but it's done and it's wonderful um again I am digressing um (laughs) So you've mentioned that 
you know, it's all about that balance and figuring out how mm. to find that balance and, and have those boundaries in place and, and sort of not go into that people pleasing driver that that's sort of almost like a fail safe, not that it's helpful, but like we go into, into that, those kind of things when we are off kilter. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you say your biggest learning or um, your, an aha moment of yours would be? Yeah. Um, realizing that I wasn't broken, um, that I didn't have to change myself. I just needed to learn how to honor myself. Um, you know, being, being an HSP, like I grew up with just such high anxiety and fear over being rejected that I learned how to be a chameleon. And I learned how to become so attuned to the people around me um, and be the, the person that I felt they needed me to be in the moment um, so that they were happy. And um, that was, that was really big for me when I realized I I'm actually a pretty awesome person and I don't have to change for other people to like me because the people who will like me and accept me, that's who I need in my life anyways. Um, So yeah, just, I mean, learning how to honor myself and through that being an HSP, like vulnerability is huge with me being an empath. Um, And that was something that was kind of seen as a weakness when I was a child. Um, And so I suppressed that a lot. Uh, And through my healing journey, and then with my practice now, vulnerability is like my number one thing, because it allows for really beautiful ruptures and repairs and um, being able to gain those deep relationships of trust and learning how to trust myself better. That it's like, I do know what I need and it's okay for me to say, I need this from you um, because I'm honoring myself. And then through me honoring myself, our relationship or whoever I'm in relationship with, like it just, it creates a better foundation. Yeah. That piece on vulnerability, you know, it isn't a weakness. It is something that it means you're honoring yourself. Yeah. And like people don't do it. It's hard. So the minute someone does it, everyone feels uncomfortable and it's like, hang about, that's not how it's supposed to be here. Like I'm telling you what I need or what I, what I want from like say this relationship and whether you then honor what I've said to help me feel at ease or not that is on you but like I am telling you for me that this is what I need and if you're not comfortable with that then that's okay yeah that's okay we're not meant to to be in the space together in whatever dynamic that relationship is um and that is it that is okay we're not meant to please everybody we're not meant to bend and mold ourselves to fit each person we come into contact with no because you so easily can fall into the realm of um, perfectionism feeling like you know you have to be what everybody needs and then that perfectionism aspect kicks in and I mean nobody's perfect perfection is such a myth that we buy into Um, it's baloney we are all so uniquely individual and we all have our own little quirks that I mean what what is perfect yeah doesn't exist it doesn't it doesn't and I think the thing is if anybody even remotely looks perfect I am though what am I doing wrong you know like they are not but they're not perfect anyway they're just looking like they are I always remind my girls like I've got um a teenager is 14 I'm like what you see on social media is not reality it's so fake you know 
it's so fake it's the best parts it's what they want you to see you know it is the same in, in real life though you see a persona you don't know what's going on inside their head that's always something I think about yeah. you know you can hear what people say you can see the movements you can see their actions but you can't see what's inside them. you really have no idea yeah. what's going on inside no so even I like to sort of have a little play with it and think like even the bits I'm seeing like what I think is true and raw and real and honest might actually not be and it's always good to just be mindful of that don't sit that heavy on your heart don't go to bed at night worrying about that but like just be mindful that we never fully yeah. know how yeah. somebody is inside. A lot of people keep it hidden out of fear of rejection. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I have loved our chat today. I've loved it too. Thank you. I've just loved it. I've loved all these chats. All these collaboration <laughs> episodes have been so fun. So before you go, do you have something to offer our listeners today or where could they find you? Yeah, so I would love to offer a 30% discount for the first six sessions um, for any new client. And um, if you would like to reach out to me, um, you can find me at Instagram at WMC Trauma Coach. Um, and then my booking website is on there and will also be in the show notes. Awesome. And thank you so much for offering such a generous discount as well for our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. I loved connecting with Whitney. Her insights and vulnerability is a breath of fresh air. Not only that, but she has generously given 30% off the first six sessions for our listeners. You can grab that by connecting with Whitney over on social media and quote this episode. Okay, it's time to meet the brilliant Joanna Rawbone. Jo has always known that she was different from peers, friends and family. And in her 30s, she discovered how. She was an introvert. Over more than three decades working as a trainer and consultant with thousands of international clients, Joanna noticed how the bias in favour of extroversion within organisations negatively impacted employee engagement, retention and productivity, as well as the well-being of employees. Thus began a mission. Through her business, Flourishing Introverts, she champions the cause of introverts. She states that once introverts own and play to their strengths, anything is possible. Let's dive in. Hey Joe, I would love for you to tell the listeners really succinctly who you are, how you identify as a neurodivergent person or how you help neurodivergent people. Hi Sarah, yes, so I'm Joe Joanna Rawbone and I, I identify as neurodivergent maybe in a slightly unexpected way in that I identify as an introvert and the reason that we now know that's neurodivergent is because functional neuroimaging studies show that the brains of introverts and extroverts light up differently when stimulated in the same way. So it's down to wiring. It's it's not just a, a preference or a choice. So that's how I identify as neurodivergent. And I love that. And we, we spoke before, obviously, coming together today on this recording about the differences that we find and the people who feel like extroverts but need that sort of recovery time and that sort of introversion comes out um which is how i i identify i love speaking on space on stages i love um you know commanding a room and and, and doing this and going to parties and, and socializing with people mm -hmm. but i also really need that downtime as well and that you know and i, and I say to my friends like I, I laugh about it like a dark room like go lie down <laughs> a dark room but that's literally my preference like absolutely yeah. Um, so it's, it's, it was a, a sort of a light bulb moment for me when I was speaking to you where you, um, what was the term you, you used for it? Was it extroverted introvert? 
Yes. Yeah, so I'm an extroverted introvert. There's a, a quiz that I've got that helps people identify. Some people are classic introvert, like introvert all the way. But lots of us are extroverted introverts. We have access to some of the extrovert natural tendencies, but without them draining us quite in the such way, in the same way. But when our batteries are drained, we're off, we're into that darkened room or somewhere quiet on our own where we can retreat and recharge quietly, privately quite often. Yeah. So what would your what would you say the biggest struggle of being an introvert would be? The biggest struggle by far has been trying to thrive in a world that's so biased towards the extrovert ideal. And I would like to know who first decided that extrovert was the norm and the introvert is somehow, you know, not normal. So right the way through my career, I realized I was different. I struggled to and in fact, I pretended to be more extroverted in order to fit in and get on. And eventually, of course, that led to burnout. You can only do that for so long. Because the frustrating thing for me is I knew in my 30s that what made me different was my introversion. I did the classic Myers-Briggs type indicator, which is how many introverts find out what you know how they're different. But I didn't know what to do with it at that stage. It just highlighted the difference for me between introvert and extrovert. So I had like a blueprint of, okay, so this is how I have to be in order to be a success in life. So by far the biggest struggle for me was being able to recognize that the extrovert ideal doesn't suit a lot of people up to 50% of people identify as introverts. So, you know, there are many other people like me who struggle with this notion of, to to be successful in somehow you have to be extrovert big big struggle yeah and I can I can as you're speaking um about that I'm thinking to like people who won't go for promotions who won't speak up in um meetings who maybe they'll hold their business back because they don't want to put out on social media yeah because that doesn't feel good for them um what kind of advice would you give someone like that that's that's sort of you know not being forward with their with their abilities and their skills for me, there's something really important about being, knowing who you are, owning your introversion and really being prepared to play to the strengths of that rather than hold back. So when I'm working with introverts and you asked in your first question, you know, how do I work with neurodivergent people? I work with introverts, typically who are in those STEM and professional service areas, often at management level already, but know they have more to offer but don't want to do it inauthentically. So for me, it's about really helping them to own their introversion, to recognize their strengths, to play to their strengths as much as they can. And for instance, that means using techniques like placeholders. So because we have this think, say, think communication process, when someone asks us a question, we don't automatically or naturally come up with the answer right off the tip of our tongue. We, mm. we often want to think it through and give a really considered response. And one of the challenges is then the conversation moves on. We don't get the chance to say what we want to say. So one of the tips and techniques that I, I teach some of my clients is how to use the placeholder which is to get my voice into the conversation, even if I don't yet know what I'm going to say. Mm. And there'll be a bit of a pre-frame that goes something like, so as I'm considering your question, there are a couple of things that are coming to mind to me. And, you know, I'm just debating kind of, so all the while I'm doing that blur, 
what I'm doing is I'm desperately thinking about what is my answer here, but I haven't mm-hmm. lost the room. I've kept my place in the conversation. So that's often important to do because unless we do that, we will literally be kind of, we'll be lost. And there's nothing more frustrating, I think, than somebody saying for a conversation that's moved on five or six minutes saying, can I just add? And it's like, oh, why didn't you say that earlier? So I think it's important that we do find a way to speak up, but in a way that's authentic to us. I really like that. I really, I think that can resonate with a lot of people, especially if they feel like the least confident in the room as well, whether then um, neurodivergent or an introvert or not, just feeling like, oh, I, I want to put my, uh, you know, my two pens in, yeah. but I want to just make sure what I'm saying isn't ridiculous or isn't like, you know, just paraphrasing what somebody else has said and just having that ability to keep like you say that placeholder mm-hmm. um, I think is a really valuable thing so thank you for sharing that welcome have you got um an aha moment yourself maybe for um navigating life and business as a um introvert yeah one of them would definitely be owning introversion without shame playing to strengths but I've got another one that I'll sneak in on the back of the placeholder and that's to actually learn how to articulate our strengths as introverts positively Mm. you know so many introverts are tired of being told oh you're so quiet you're right is there something wrong with you and you know the number of times I've been it's been commented how quiet I am not that you'd think it listening to me today here (laughs) um but in the past I would have mumbled some kind of apology and these days what I say is Thank you for noticing, Mm. you know, as an introvert, one of my real strengths is my ability to listen and my ability to notice what's not being said as well as what's being said. And then I can summarize and make sure that, you know, everything is covered. So thank you for noticing. It's an energetic shift, isn't it? Absolutely. It's so powerful. So powerful. Yeah, I really like that. I think, um, and these are other discussions as well, for sure, but there's so many apologies that aren't needed. Absolutely. Oh, I'm sorry. I haven't got my makeup on today. Like, does anybody really care? Does it matter if anyone cares? Should you care that anybody cares? Do you know? And it goes on and on like that, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, Into all sorts of, you know, like the dance that we do, especially as Brits, if we get in each other's way, you know, sorry, sorry. We're all like jiving around. (laughs) Exactly. And it's like, you know what? We're both able to take up space and we both happen to just be in the same, you know, area of space. But um, yeah, I think that's really good. Thank you. I love that. Thank you for being on this, uh, on this podcast today. You're welcome. It's been a lo- it's been a pleasure talking to you. And I feel we could carry on for ages. Oh, we could carry I know. On. I know we are on a time we time are, limit. Here. We are. We are on this collaboration episode. Um, do you have anything for our listeners today, or where could uh, where could they find you? I have lots of things, but do you know the one stop shop is if your listeners go to flourishingintroverts.com, which is my main website. You'll there find the quiz you can take that will help you understand what type of introvert you are, as well as some free downloadables, things like my brilliant battery boosters. So lots of tips, my blog, my podcast, my TV show, it's all there. So the one stop shop. Fantastic. Thank you. Isn't Joe Brill. I particularly loved her tip on having a placeholder preframe to keep your place in a conversation. It's something I'm actually personally using now. Go check out Joe's free introvert quiz. The link is in the show notes. Next up, meet the fantastic Stephanie Mojica. Drawing on her 17-year tenure as an award-winning journalist with publications such as USA Today, The Philadelphia Inquirer, 
San Francisco Chronicle and The Virginian Pilot, amongst many others, Stephanie's greatest passion is working with entrepreneurs, coaches and licensed professionals, such as attorneys and psychologists, to craft their stories into books that draw clients to them. She has coached dozens of authors through the book writing process, including Andrew Wilkinson, The Blessing of My Storms, and Dion Monsanto, 101 Ways to Live Life in Joy. Let's jump in. So Stephanie, tell the listeners really succinctly (laughs) who you are, how you identify as neurodivergent, or how you help neurodivergent people. So I'm Stephanie Mojica. I'm from uh, the United States. I actually wear a few hats. I'll try to keep it as uh, succinct as possible. I'm a book development coach, so I help people write and publish their books. I'm also a book editor, so I can edit people's books. And then I am also a professional writer. And I have ADHD. It's the combined type for those who are familiar with it. I've had that since I was seven years old. And I have helped, I would say a lot of my clients are neurodivergent and I will be rebranding my business to accommodate that because there's a lot of people who are neurodivergent. And when you're trying to write, whether for your own book or for your business, it can be really challenging. Yeah, I can imagine. And you've got like, maybe people with ADHD, maybe people with dyslexia, you know, other neurodivergences yes. that are showing through who are wanting to to write and publish a book. What would be... What would be their biggest struggle, would you say, when it comes to to writing a book? Yeah, I have worked with a couple of people with dyslexia, and actually they did really well, like dictating their books, like just telling their stories. A lot of neurodivergent people seem to do better that way. You tell your story and it transcribes it into text. So people do that. Um, a lot of the people I've worked with have ADHD. A few have autism. I would say the big struggle for people with ADHD, myself included, is that there's not an immediate deadline. It does not get done. And I'll talk about that more in a minute <laughs> as far as my business. But so I have like a, a book outlining and planning process where we set deadlines and things of that nature. And that tends to work really well with people, uh, even people that don't have ADHD tend to procrastinate on things like writing. I think that's right. And I think we touched on the things having no deadline. For me, um, as an ADHD and myself, I find deadlines that are so far in advance really abstract as well. So it means nothing to me. If I've got a deadline in September, it will literally not be on my radar till mid-August, which is not necessarily great if I've got several steps to the process. So like, I don't know whether you come across this, um, setting a lot of smaller deadlines, but then I have to kind of trick myself into believing that they're important because the other part of me will be like, but it doesn't really need doing until September. So like, do you come across that? Uh, yeah, definitely. And then, like I said, the book outline process I use with my clients, actually I used it with myself because I'm currently writing a book about uh, writing for lawyers. But basically it has like micro tasks and deadlines, like, you know, micro tasks, right? Section one of chapter one by, let's say March 30th, because we're in March when we're recording this. And I find, and like I said, I use my own process. I am one of those people. I only teach what I do. That's Mm -hmm. just me. That's just my ethical boundary. And I find that by setting deadlines like that, I'm actually way ahead of my deadlines. I thought I was going to be finished with this book in November because I wanted to give myself generous deadlines because it's not an urgent. 
book, yeah. but it's something I want to do. I've had some health you know, issues and I've been at home pretty much all the time. So I wanted to try to take advantage of this time. So I find, and this has happened with a couple of my clients as well, that when you set a lot of deadlines, you start getting ahead of the game. Is there is there a specific way to do that that you found helpful? So, um, you know, obviously you can get out, you know, pen and paper or, you know, Microsoft Word, Google Docs, whatever you want, and just start saying you're going to write chapter one by April 30th, for example. And then you break that down and you're going to write the first part of chapter one. So it's just like you have to like kind of brain dump all the tasks and, you know, just start setting deadlines. And I always like to try to do buffering. I think it's what my business mm-hmm. coach calls it. It's like, you know, be more generous with your deadlines when they're for yourself, because otherwise they're not going to get met. And then you're going to feel like a failure. Yeah, no, I 100% like buffer time is something I teach all my clients, neurodivergent or not, Um, you know, because shit hits the fan, things go wrong, people get sick, you get called away, like, you know, life just happens, doesn't it? Right, exactly. Or or we manage, we think something's going to take us an hour, but it takes us two and a half, right? So we've only penned in that hour. Right. And the extra hour and a half has been pulled from somewhere else and we're in this panicky mess now. Um, I think buffer time is so valuable. Right. That happened to me just a couple of days ago. I thought it was going to take about an hour and a half. Like I said, I do still do a lot of writing for other people. I was writing an article for a magazine and I had transcribed the interview with the subject from uh, using otter.ai. So I was like, oh, I had this interview transcribed. It can't possibly take more than an hour. It wound up taking me closer to three hours. So it's like, even with, you know, I've been writing since I was eight and I'm 43 now. So 35 years and then I would say professionally for about 25 years I tend to underestimate from time to time yeah it happens to the best of us <laughs> um so with that in mind is there anything that you could give our listeners that has been sort of like an aha moment for you or something that's helped you navigate your your ADHD well, right now I'm not taking my medication. I, I know medication is a controversial thing. Some people take it, some people don't. Um, I'm not taking my medication because of my health issues. So I've really had to lean into communities. There's a lot of co-working communities. There's a lot of Facebook communities. You know, I have a one-on-one business coach now. It's like, I really have to tell people what I'm going to do or it's harder to get it done unless it's like a client deadline. But if it's not an immediate deadline, it's much harder for me to get done without the medication. So I've just, you know, I, and I think, and I don't want to sound like medication is like a miracle cure. Believe me, I can, I have hyper-focused on the wrong thing after taking my dose of Adderall. It's like, you know, you don't start playing like a game on your phone right after you take your Adderall. (laughs) (laughs) Because then it could take hours. So there's, I don't want it to sound like, you know, that only people with medication can survive. That's definitely not true. But I just find that now that I'm not on medication after I haven't been on it for many, many years, it's like I had to really lean more into communities for accountability. Yeah. So you recognize that and and sort right. of leaned into it and, and gone for that community. And I, I think community plays a really plays a really key part in it for me as well, not just for my own um personal endeavors and staying on track. Uh, but with my clients too. And I think it is, it's that 
even if they they are not a business coach or they're not someone you're you're paying to to help support you if they're a friend or or um an acquaintance or another business um person and just having that time online together where you hop on zoom and you're like hey this is what i'm going to do in the next hour what are you going to do and they're like hey i'm doing this and then you know you stay on zoom and you disappear and you do your own things and it's just that oh I've got that accountability now. I've got that person that I said I would do the thing for. And even, you know, if you didn't do it, it wouldn't matter to the person really. Mm-hmm. But you've got that, you've spoken it. You said it out loud to somebody else and they are like expecting that. Um, and there's been some research that I was looking at as well, which um, is about body doubling. So just having somebody in the vicinity yes. as well, which me and my husband have been trialing out. He's also um, ADHD as well. And I didn't think it would work very well. I kind of felt like he would be watching over my shoulder a little bit and like she, you know, judging me for like looking at my phone, um, right. which wasn't the case at all. We were both just independently working in the office, in our zone. And we both stayed so much more focused, like even without telling each other what we were doing, just being in the same room working together, like no words were spoken apart from, okay, let's, we'll see you in 90 minutes. Like we got so much done. It was insane. Yeah, I mean, I definitely am a fan of body doubling. And there are free services where you need to do that. There's like Focus Mate that they have, like, you can have a certain number mm-hmm. of free sessions a week. Uh, ADHD groups on Facebook, there's people that are setting up body doubling. So you don't have to pay for communities. There are plenty of paid communities. And for me, it's worth it. But I know that, you know, people have different financial constraints. Yeah. So there are definitely ways to do it for free. Yeah, I love that. And that's something that I'm bringing into my um, Facebook community as well, which for those listening is Drive to Thrive. ADHD won't stop me. And the link is in the show notes. But it's something that I'm bringing in really soon that I'm going to be putting out there and saying, hey, if anyone wants to hop on for one of these sessions, you are more than welcome. And it is going to be a free a free offering. And I think that is it is really important. And then some people need to put skin in the game, as it were, and need to pay. Some people need to know that right. they paid 30 quid, 50 pound, whatever a month to go and be part of something because then they're more likely to show up and do the work. Whereas others will be like, you know what, I'm taking this at face value. It's free and I'm going to show up and make the most of it. It depends who you are. Um, you right. know, and you'll know that whether you come to a free session or not versus whether you will come yeah, to a paid session. Both. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it is down to the individual, isn't it? Um, I really enjoyed this. I really enjoyed talking to you about sort of like getting those deadlines in order, making those mini tasks. And, and the fact that you're leaning into that community and, and noticing you know what the medication you know not having the medication has meant for you and finding a workaround I think that's beautiful thank you I really appreciate it it's been an honor to talk to you I'll definitely get active in the Facebook community yes I would love you to um before you go do you have uh, something to offer to our listeners today or where could they find you Sure. So I have a free ebook, you know, for those of you who are out there who are interested in writing and publishing a book, it's called three things you must know before writing your book. Like I said, right now, the business is not officially neurodivergent focused, but really looking at the tips I gave, it was basically based on my own experience. So it's very neurodivergent friendly. So you can get three things you must know before writing your book by visiting gettheirattentionnow.com forward slash book that's get their attention now.com forward slash book uh there will be a facebook group link in show notes it's a low traffic group but uh high you know value and also you can reach out to me on linkedin i'm one of those people i will accept your friend request etc cetera, etc cetera. so don't be shy and definitely reach out if you just want to say hi thank you so much stephanie thank you 
Stephanie's learnings over leaning into community, accountability and asking for support have helped her so much when medication had to be stopped for other health reasons. It shows adaptability, thinking outside the box and not giving up at the first hurdle. I absolutely applaud it. If you are thinking of adding a book to your offerings, download Stephanie's free book first. Three things you must know before writing your book. The link is in the show notes. And last but definitely not least, meet the amazing Dorothy Vilnuf. Dorothy is a sales and marketing consultant for online female coaches, experts, and thought leaders who want to zero in on their brilliance zone, simplify, and increase their sales, and finally get all their fancy funnels and copywriting finished, even if they dread the tech and feel scattered. Let's jump in. Hey, Dorothy. Tell the listeners really succinctly who you are, how you identify as a neurodivergent person, or how you help neurodivergent people. Hey, Sarah. So I'm a sales and marketing consultant for online uh, women who are coaches, experts, course creators, thought leaders. And I identify as neurodivergent because I got diagnosed by uh, my doctor really postpartum with postpartum depression um, alongside it. So it was a bit of a whirlwind journey to discover that uh, at the ripe old age of 39. Oh, wow. How have you found that diagnosis then? Um, it's actually been at first, it was not surprising. Um, a lot of us obviously self-diagnosed a little bit on the old TikTok. Um, the other things that came along with the diagnosis and the fact that I had always had generalized anxiety disorder. Um, I'd been depressive, but nothing risky kind of thing. And this was, this came about this diagnosis because I was starting to suspect I had, um, neurodivergency by all the TikTok videos I was seeing where I was raising my fingers <laughs> over and over again. Um, and then I actually fell into a very deep depression postpartum uh, with my second child, which I hadn't experienced after my first and everything got really confusing. Um, none of my coping strategies were working. And it was interesting because the doctor actually um, was resistant at first to diagnose me. And then three months later, when I got back to her and was like, Hey, I'm really struggling here and I'm really having trouble. She said, Oh, that's common for women with adult diagnosed ADHD to often not know that they have it and find out when they're experiencing postpartum depression. Wow. I did not know that. So interesting story. I suffered postnatal depression with my third child, not with the other two. Um, and again, you know, my coping strategies weren't working. I was ridiculously low. And I thought, you know what? This is a phase. It'll pass. Do you know, I've got three young children. And they were literally like, they're 22 months apart, each of my kids. So they were like three under four years old at one point, And it was tough. And my husband worked away. Um, or I say away out of the home. Um, and I went to the doctor and she said to me, and this is really bad advice, obviously, just go and sit in a dark room, put on some sad music and have a big cry. You'll feel better. Now, up until that point, I had hidden my postnatal depression and any feelings of unworthiness and just awful thoughts for about two years. So my my third child was two at this point. And I don't think she'd realized how long, how long I put this off and how much I hit rock bottom to sort of be made to go to the doctors by my husband, who then was seriously worried about me when I said this has been going on since she was born. Um, and yeah, she just sort of dismissed me and sent me away. But actually, I didn't know I had ADHD at the time either. So what you've just said to me there is making a ton of sense that like I didn't realize what was going on inside my head until I really needed support, if you get what I mean. And actually knowing 
I had ADHD back then would have been really, really fucking helpful. It it makes a lot of sense when you realize, like, for me, I had always had discussions with her about I have light depression, maybe seasonal affective disorder, no suicidal ideation, anything like that. She was aware of it. I was supplementing for it and stuff like that and definitely had anxiety, but uh, had no idea that it was ADHD. And when we conducted all the diagnoses for it and I went through my psychological evaluation and that sort of thing, that was when all these sorts of historical things of, you know, classroom experiences when you're a child or things that my parents commented on and things like that. I even went back and talked about it with my mom because again, they all just think of ADHD as inattentive, right? And women often aren't the inattentive type and that can happen. Um, but she was astonished. She's, she was like, tick, tick, tick. Yeah. All of those things I remember from your childhood as things you did. And it was all coming up in just a simple conversation that had never been had. Yeah, no, I think that's that's it. And I think as women as well, we tend to mask things. We tend to mask and cope. 100%. And people are like, oh, you can't be ADHD. Surely not. Like, you haven't got this and that. And I'm like, well, yeah, I don't have the hyperactivity. I don't massively have inattentiveness. Um, my daughter has a lot of inattentiveness. That's her main thing um forgetfulness as well you know having to reiterate the steps it takes to get dressed in the morning even though she's been going to school since she was four and she's 10 now like these are things that people pick up and should be able to do but her like executive fun functioning in that area is not great um so it is it's recognizing that there are so many different traits that come out in people and you know the studies that i've been looking at uh, particularly in the book Divergent Mind, if you've uh, heard of it. Yes. I'll pop the link in the show notes for anybody else who's interested. Um, you know, they did a lot of the the tests on boys and, and males because the hormones just weren't present, so it was easier to get data. But then they missed off all the ways that the girls cope and the, the way that we lead our lives, which has led to all these late diagnoses, right? Absolutely. And I had um, really poor reception. My mother was not so bad because she was very aware that I was really struggling and having trouble. Um, but my siblings were absolutely not receptive. I got the, uh, this is the hardest season of your life. Having kids is really difficult. I went through a similar thing. Um, you'll just like what you said, you'll just come out of it, that sort of thing. And, um, the lack of awareness and then, um, sort of the lack of consideration for the fact that it's, it's a big deal and it's real. And, not wanting, not accepting or being okay with people self-diagnosing was really apparent in my own family. So that was very shameful for me because it felt like, oh, I saw ADHD as potentially a superpower at that point. I didn't, I recognized a lot of the positive parts of it. Um, the, you know, executive dysfunction and depression and things like that, problematic. However, my function in workplaces and ability to pick things up quickly and just like be successful at almost anything I tried, right? The hyper-focus part, I saw all those things as positive and was living a different lived experience because it was pandemic-y time. And so my experience on TikTok also wasn't cool to like say, I, you know, learned about this on TikTok. Everyone was still thinking it was pointing and dancing and for teenagers. <laughs> so their reception was really dark and really sent me into a spiral. And I was really mad, sad, and unhappy about it. I can imagine. But then I had to sort of go through the process of taking my medication and getting some sort of balance and recovery. 
And then after that, understanding that it was their awareness. They lacked 100% of awareness. They thought I was being diagnosed with a problem. And instead, I was like, this is actually relief. Mm -hmm. And a problem is, you know, when people think of a problem, you kind of think of it being able to go away. Mm -hmm. And obviously, ADHD is part of us. And we can view it in a positive, a negative, or a neutral light. And I think the more people coming at you with that negativity, it can then make you doubt the way you see yourself. Oh, 100%. It made me feel like their perception of me that was that I was less than and that I was going to get through this struggle. And at the same time, I I don't think we've ever had productive conversations as a family sense about oh it. It's just not something they're interested in going down the road of understanding. But at the same time, I'm pretty sure my mom is like 99.9% sure she has ADHD, which makes a lot of sense. I, my father, I, he's passed now, but I pretty much guarantee did not have it based on how he behaves. But I have a sneaking suspicion that several of my siblings, one, I have three of them, one, if not two of them definitely have it, but are in such unaware state that they, they don't know. And for me, it's made a world of difference to dive into a bit of the research and things like that, like you've done to discover what's out there for resources and things like that like you can definitely leverage your neurodivergence for benefit in a lot of ways but also for grace in when you do have executive dysfunction I two weeks ago had a complete failure of ability to do anything I was in basically freeze mode for a good I would say five days where I just I felt like I couldn't accomplish anything or do anything and in the past when something like that would happen to me I would beat the crap out of myself with my internal monologue. And instead I mentioned to my VA and said like, I'm so sorry, I'm not getting the things done. I need to get done for you. I'm, I'm behind, uh, like I just, I'm in freeze mode. And I said, and it happens and it will pass and it is a cycle. And when we had our next call, she actually complimented me and said, you know, to see a successful entrepreneur like you go through this, she works with ADHD people. Mm. She's like, and to know that you just like, move through it was so rewarding for me to see. She's like, I've never felt as seen and heard and understood as when you just told me flat out, I'm in freeze mode, I'm accomplishing crap and I can't get out of it, but I will. And she said that gave me the ability to give myself grace and to realize that these things don't last forever and that you'll recover and the world doesn't end. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's it. It's learning to, to ride the wave. Um, and talking about riding the wave, what would you say that your biggest struggle has been so far in life or business? Definitely. I did a lot of things in the early states of my business that I wasn't interested in. So it would be motivation because they have that acronym for neurodivergent people where if it's like not interesting, challenging, novel, or urgent, learning that was like life-changing for me to help me understand that that's why things stopped being interesting to me and why I was constantly seeking motivation, but it's not necessarily motivation just doesn't come to you. So that was my biggest struggle is learning that unless something's novel or unless there's a deadline on it and then sharing that with my clients, because now my clients know if you don't put a deadline on something that you need from me or that you want from me or that you would like follow up on, then it won't necessarily happen. So everything for them Obviously, I attract a lot of neurodivergent clients as well, because that just happens. Everything from them is timelined, deadlined, and we work together through it. And if they're having 
the ADHD freeze factor, then I help them move through that, right? Because often I'm not in freeze mode and I can facilitate, but that was a big one is that you, you can't rely on motivation. Like you just will not get success with it. Yeah. I hear you with that. As you were saying that I was thinking of like all the deadlines that have crept upon me and I've done more in like the three days leading up to the deadline that I've done in the past six weeks. Right. Yeah. Because I'm like, oh, holy crap, this is real now. Like when I set deadlines so far in advance, they're so abstract to me. And I think, mm, well, that's July, you know, I'll get that done. I'll get that done. And all of a sudden we're at the back end of June and then all hands on deck, I suddenly find the ability <laughs> to do it all. And then my husband will say things like, like, well, he said it the other year when I was doing so, it's like, I've not seen you move so much in like the entire week and you've just been like hot on it. Like you've had no motivation all week. And I said, yeah, because the deadlines crept up. Like mm -hmm. it's not healthy. I'm still learning to like balance this and trial having little deadlines but if I know that that's not really a deadline if I know it's a fake deadline I am less likely to run up to it and do it I am more likely to lapse and then change the goalpost so I'm still learning what works best with me um, I, I have to have people on the other side so for my podcast I have a producer and the producer needs my podcast every week mm. by a certain date otherwise the podcast doesn't get published. Right. And then I have a special VA that works with ADHD people. And that's the same thing is, um, she's really great at, you know, reminding me, Hey, today you said you were going to do this. And, you know, I just want to make sure you're focused on this, or this client is going to need this by the end of the week, that mm -hmm. sort of reminder. And it, it really helps because once I'm accountable to someone else, it's kind of like people going to the gym. Yeah. Right. If I know someone else is going to be at the gym, I will be there. Yeah. 100%. But if no one else is going to be at the gym, I can set, you know, be at the gym at 7 a.m. and I'll be rolling over in my bed, falling back asleep kind of thing. Putting somebody else there has made the accountability work for me. But that's just for me. Right? Yeah. Right. Everyone's going to try it, see what works for them. Yes. So that's obviously um, a tip there that that's worked for you. What would you say your number one tip or maybe aha moment that has helped you navigate your neurodivergence? What would you say that was? I broke the rules on my business um, because when I was coming up in like 2017 and doing an online business and becoming a coach and a consultant, that sort of thing, uh, I started out only as coaching. Um, everybody's idea of success was to have like a full client roster mm. every day of the week. And so I kept striving for that and striving for that and trying to like fill my week with all this busy time. And I, my brain plateaus and maxes out. And the other thing I had been taught, was like, short calls, right? Only an hour and then like close down the call and cut them off and blah, blah, blah. So now, um, I just increase my prices. I work with, uh, one or two clients a day. I take one or two calls a day. I'm fresh as a daisy when I go to pick up my kids or see my husband. And, uh, I can remember flat out him being like, if you have to work this hard at this job, just go get a job. And I've completely pivoted that. And he commented the other day, cause he's like, you've actually taken like a couple weekends off in a row where I've only seen you like, you know, toddle off to your computer to send a few replies to people or do something like that. And he's like, you're not working all the time like you were. And I'm like, yeah, and I'm making more money, which makes more sense <laughs> <Yay>. for me. <laughs> That's it. It's having that balance, isn't it? Of going, well, what's going to cause me overwhelm? What's going to cause me fatigue? What's going to cause burnout? And then going, okay, well, how can I reduce that? but either keep the same money in or more, um, you know, how can I do that without, you know, to the detriment of, of my, my income. Right. And I think you found a really good balance there. 
Oh, it makes a hundred percent sense. And honestly, the clients that I work with repeatedly thank me because a lot of times when you have ADHD or neurodivergency, getting to the point means you need a lot of mental clutter cleared out of your brain. Mm. So being able to not hold them to a tight timeline of a call of, you know, 25 minutes or 30 minutes, that sort of thing, they get a full two hours to get their whole ideation and creation and solution built out such that we have really productive calls and they walk away feeling really good about them. But if they need to have a short one, they can, but oftentimes they need to work through things to a point Mm. where they feel really good about it and leave with a smile on their face. I love that you're offering that. Um, Have you got something that you want to offer our listeners today or where perhaps they could find you? Sure. Um, I do have for anyone who is in the online entrepreneurial space that is creating sales pages or offers, services, things like that. I have a high converting sales page guide uh, that takes you through the 14 key elements of everything that you need inside a high converting sales page. And it also has a video tutorial that walks you through and gives you verbal examples of everything so that it features all the neurodivergent types of learning. You can learn by listening and hearing, you can learn by doing, and you can learn by reading. Oh, that sounds absolutely immense that you've got all those different ways of of sort of like the learning required and, you know, because not one size fits all, right? No, and you can even speed up the time on the video. Oh, That's gosh. my favorite part of life. I do Thank that God. literally all the time. Like if I have to watch something live, I'm like, damn, I'm going to have to really focus now. <laughs> thank you so much for being on the show. Yes, thank you, Sarah. It was great. I gained so much listening to Dorothy's story of realizing she had ADHD through postpartum depression and suddenly finding that her coping mechanisms no longer worked. I really related and I hope you did too. If you want to get your hands on Dorothy's high converting sales page freebie, hopefully by now you know where to go, (laughs) head on over to the show notes. And that's it for today's episode. Four fantastic women, Whitney, Joe, Stephanie and Dorothy. Thank you for coming on the show, being real and sharing your truth as entrepreneurs and fucking awesome neurodivergent humans. If you didn't listen to part one of this two-part collab, go check it out, episode 10. I shared four conversations with four other amazing entrepreneurs and it is not to be missed. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to connect with the guests that resonated with you. Their socials are in the show notes too. Next episode is the last one for this season and there is something special in it for the listeners of this podcast. So check that out. Till next time.